In this episode of Schneps Connects, we're talking about one of the crown jewels or the crown jewel, I think, of New York City, which is Central Park. I'm excited to have with me Betsy Smith, who's the president and CEO of the Central Park Conservancy. She holds one of the most unique leadership positions, shepherding a New York institution unlike any other. Central Park is completely free to the public with no admission fee, and it's up to the nonprofit conservancy to raise the majority of the park's multi-million dollar operating budget to ensure its long-term sustainability. With an unprecedented 42 million annual visitors, Central Park requires long-term strategic planning to accommodate this incredible use while staying true to the park's founding purpose as a respite for peace and the pressures of life. I think certainly during the pandemic, it was a place that many people could go to safely. Betsy's role oversees strategic planning, park operations, capital programming, public programming, development and marketing and communication strategies, I think among many other. Previously, she served on the Conservancy's Board of Trustees and the Advisory Board of the Institute for Urban Parks, the Conservancy's educational arm. She was a former New York City Parks Assistant Commissioner in the Bloomberg administration and also served as a board member of Friends of the High Line, the Open Space Institute, and as Vice Chair of New Yorkers for Parks. She is currently Chair of the Board of Library of America, a nonprofit publisher of significant American writing. Well, that's a lot going on, Betsy. Welcome. Thank you so much for sharing. It stresses me out to hear you say all those things. Right, I bet. You don't have to think about it. You just do it, I bet. (laughs) So Central Park, I mean, it goes without saying that, you know, it's really the centerpiece of of New York City. And I want to start off by asking you, I think, a question. I feel like everybody has a part of the park that's, you know, special to them for one reason or the other, whether it's maybe a moment in their life or... They just have spent a lot of time there or, you know, treasure the tranquility. What would you say is your favorite part of the park? Well, it's changed, actually. You know, I brought up my children in Central Park and uh, lived on the Upper East Side. And uh, I'd say for, for many, many years, I've said that the conservatory water, which is also known as the boat pond, was one of the most beautiful, serene places in the park. But since I've taken this job, I'd say there's no question that my favorite part of the park is the north end of the park. Part of this is the enormous amount of work we're doing up there, Joshua, uh, on the Harlem Mirror, which we can talk about. But it is, it really, to me, gives life to the purpose of the park as a way to escape the urban grid. The northern part of the park was designed by Frederick Law Olmsted basically to be the Adirondacks that he saw many New Yorkers never being in a position to go to. And so there's the Northwoods, the Ravine, the Harlem Mirror, all those areas are places where you really can forget you're in New York, which quite frankly, is the purpose of the park. The purpose of the park is not to be the city. And I'll throw in at the end, that's one of our biggest challenges. (laughs) Well, what I love about how you're explaining is I'm saying to myself, maybe I haven't been up that far. Absolutely. A lot of people people actually go into the park on their route. They either commute through the park or they take their children to their favorite playgrounds. Mm -hmm. One of the great things that happened to me when I took this job is that I got a little golf cart and I now am all over the park all the time. The park is huge. It's 843 acres. So it's very hard to see everything unless you're a biker and you do the whole loop or a runner and you're training for the marathon. 
it's hard to get around the whole park, but it's a magnificent landscape and it's monumental in scale. I guess when you think about that, you're running a trillion dollar real estate portfolio. <laughs> <laughs> so many people look at the park and, and they say, and rightly so, it's a miracle that the park wasn't eaten into yeah. <laughs> over uh, its history. It was it was designed in 1858 and finished in 1873. And practically immediately, there were people who wanted to put things in the park or nibble away at its edges. And we consider that one of the conservancy's most important objectives is to protect the park. We're not fussy preservationists, but we're protecting the park. It has a tremendous impact on the city of New York, and it's a work of art. I don't know if you saw in the Wall Street Journal last week, a full page article about Central Park as one of the most important works of American art of the 19th century. And our protecting that is a core part of our mission. That's terrific to hear. We'll talk through a little bit more of your mission. I mean, I described a little bit about some of your role and responsibilities, but share a little bit more in terms of the, the Central Park Conservancy's overall mission. Well, you know, our mission in a word is to give life to our core purpose. And you accurately said the core purpose of the park uh, is to maintain it as a respite from the pace and pressures of city life. We have given life to that mission and accomplished that mission basically through a 40-year effort to restore the park. Uh, the park had been abandoned by the city in the 70s. The city was bankrupt at the time. And the Central Park Conservancy in 1980 started a 40-year effort to restore this magnificent landscape. I often call it one of the most dramatic rescue stories of a public resource uh, in the country's history. So that's the mission of the park. The mission of the park is to provide New Yorkers and visitors with a place to escape from the city and to be recreated in Olmsted's word by contact with nature. That being in green spaces changes the way you feel about yourself. And I'd say that, you know, from a mental health point of view and all the work that's been done about green spaces and their importance in mental health, the park has really provided that resource to millions and millions of people particularly during the pandemic. It's not just that Central Park was the only thing open. The fact is, is that people felt better in green spaces across the whole city. And Central Park is huge and accommodated millions and millions of people. We had no tourists, but we had just as many visitors. That's amazing. That's actually a very interesting statistic. It is. It's, it's an amazing thing, but the power of the park really came through during the pandemic. Mm. It was a central resource to millions and millions of people. That so, brings its own challenges, <laughs> I have to say. Talk about fundraising, because everyone knows that as a nonprofit, that, that's central to, to any organization. So where do you rely on your fundraising? Well, one of the things that uh, many New Yorkers don't know about, and we are in the process of really having an expansive sort of an institutional awareness campaign, quite frankly, Joshua, because people don't realize that we are responsible for the care of the park, and that includes uh, providing the resources to care for it. We have a $100 million budget. We have been entrusted by the city after our 40-year relationship with them uh, for the complete care of the park. Mm. Um, and we raise over 80% of that amount of money. We have a fee-for-service contract with the city, uh, so they do contribute to its care. But we go out and we raise the rest of the money. It's a big, big challenge because we have no gate. We have no tickets. <laughs> we're free right. and we're open to the public from 6 a.m. to 1 a.m. 
And we have been very, very dependent on annual giving. And we are trying to create a financial structure that's a little bit more predictable than that. But it's it's a big responsibility. How many people, I mean, that's a question I just wonder, how many people work every day to maintain the park? We have about 400 people in the Conservancy's headcount. About three quarters of those are people who are actually in the park every day, mowing the lawn, pruning the trees, weeding, keeping the place clean, picking up trash, uh, providing the public programming, doing giving the tours. I mean, we are responsible for literally every aspect. Uh, we work very closely with the Central Park Precinct. We have our own precincts of... The police department does maintain safety and security in the park, but we pretty much handle all of the day-to-day care of the park. So you're also a general. You oversee an army. Unbelievable, <laughs> literally. It's, it's an army. It's quite it's, an undertaking. You know, I think it's really important for younger people to recognize where the park was in the 70s. Because I think for a lot of people that are young, and I'm talking 30s even, 20s, yeah. 30s, even 40s, that not recognizing, you know, the, the state that the city was in yeah. and to take for granted some of really the prosperity that has taken place over maybe, you know, the last 20, 30 years, but to recognize that it takes money and giving in order to be able to keep, you know, a high level of quality to what people expect. So I think it's great to communicate that, that, you know, cause I think a lot of, uh, Things have changed in terms of giving with the ability for people to give small amounts, but be able to do it in volume. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you, you you make a very, very good point. I mean, we're very proud of our 40-year history, but it is true that many young people today had no idea what the near bankruptcy of New York City really meant for Central Park. And it's not an exaggeration to say the park was disappearing. Mm -hmm. One of the most evocative things we can do to make our point is to show before and after pictures of the park. The park had no lawns. The trees weren't pruned. There were no bench slats. The lights were all out. It was a derelict landscape that was literally disappearing. And it's hard to explain to people today, basically because we've been so successful, quite frankly, in raising the money and, and having this extraordinary standard of care in the park. For people to really understand how fragile the park is. The park is a landscape. The park, you know, museums, you might be able to close the door and two years later go back, the paintings are still there. But if we took our eye off the park for two weeks, the public would notice the trash, the lawns, the pruning, the weeds, like we, it's a massive effort. And the park is a natural landscape. It needs constant care. You know, you talked a little bit about the history. I mean, obviously, you know, the, the park goes back quite a way. But talk a little bit about what you're doing to, to bring a spotlight on the history and, and even, you know, building equity. We know that the history of the park is important. And most recently, you know, we've done a lot of work as an example around Seneca Village. Seneca Village was a Black community uh, in the park in the 80s on the west side. We've done a tremendous amount of research on that community and, and what its impact was in America and in the city. And we have created programming around Seneca Village to highlight that community's contribution to New York City. And we have an expansive program that we would like to put in the public schools to really talk to people about what Seneca Village meant. You know, the the issue of equity, I often say this, uh, one of the first people in New York's history to have an equity agenda was (laughs) Frederick Law Olmsted. 
you know, he designed the park to be a very democratic space for everybody. It was it was not a royal park. It was not a private park like Gramercy Park. It was designed so that people of all classes, from all backgrounds, from all parts of the city could mix together. And so we have had an equity agenda from our founding, but we take the issues of equity very seriously. And one really good example of that, and this predates me, I wasn't responsible for the early projects in the early 90s, late 80s and early 90s, was the restoration of the East Harlem landscapes. The Harlem Mirror was redone for the first time. Uh, the, the Dana Discovery Center, the boathouse up there was a burnt out shell. Mirror had silted up and it was a wreck. And we put a lot of effort into improving that part of the park to really make give the message to New York that we were interested in the entire park. And we also knew, and we know this today, quite frankly, that the communities around Harlem really love the park and need the park. And we want to make sure that they're accessible to everyone there. Um, this massive project we have going on, building a new park, new pool and rink on the Harlem Mirror is a perfect example of that. Really giving a better resource, a more integrated resource, integrated into the park, and opening up the flows for people and wildlife and water through that area. It's, it's, I think it's going to be really beautiful. I love it. Talking about wildlife, what kind of wildlife can people be surprised about seeing in the park? I know there's hawks out there. <laughs> All I can say is you can talk to our birding community. We have a very, very active birding community. Yeah. The, uh, the Central Park is on the Atlantic Flyway which means that we get migrating birds, uh, many, many varieties. I want to say over 350 varieties of bird go through, stop at Central Park. Mm -hmm. uh, so our birding community is very active, has helped us enormously with the management of our woodlands, their bird habitat. And so we're careful to work with the birding community on the way we maintain our woodlands. But, you know, there's raccoons, there's all sorts of little mice, there's too many rats. <laughs> <laughs> but we're not immune, you know, we're in right, New York. Of course, this is New York City, right. I expect there are a lot of hawks, by the way, we've got famous hawks. They help with the rats. <laughs> famous hawks and famous rats, yeah. Talk about some of the events, because obviously a lot of people just go to the park to be able to relax or work out or, or you know, just spend a day. But I know there's certain signature events that are either annual events or just um, certain other events that take place. So I don't know which ones are your favorite or ones that you can share. Well, I'd say, you know, we do give events. We give fundraising events in the park. We're really the only ones who do give fundraising events in the park. And so we feel that's a, a real asset that we have, that we can give special events in the park for fundraising. They're always extremely well attended. We just gave a lunch for 400 people earlier this week and an autumn luncheon at four different locations around the park. It's, a, it's just a beautiful event for people to be outside. We have the Frederick Law Olmsted Lunch in May up at the Conservatory Garden, which is right near the Harlem Mirror. Another very, very important event for us. It's our major fundraiser. It's always a lot of fun. Over a thousand people come to that wow. event. And we have a gala every year, which we're giving in November. Uh, last, Our last gala was our 40th anniversary. And those are basically fundraising events. But there's yeah. a lot of other wonderful events. I think I mentioned earlier the, the Harlem Mirror 
Music Festival, Jazz on the Great Hill is a long-term event we've had with the Harlem community in partnership with Jazzmobile. Of course, many people come to the park for concerts at both Summer Stage uh, and when they're permitted on the Great Lawn, and those are fun events. I'd say my two favorite events in the park, quite frankly, are the marathon, the the finish line of the marathon. It's one of the great days in New York. Uh, It ends in Central Park, and it's just a place for people from around the world to really look at the park and appreciate its its really spectacular position in New York City and how people think of it. And I also love the Philharmonic's free concert uh, on the Great Lawn. It's just a laid back, beautiful evening uh, where a wonderful institution comes and plays for tens of thousands of New Yorkers for free. It's cool. I have to say, you have a great job. I do. I do. It's stressful. All I can say is managing, trying to manage the park for its popularity, Joshua, is very, very kind. You know, when I got here, we had finished sort of 40 years of restoration. Our project up on the Harlem Mirror was sort of the capstone piece of our restoration efforts in the park. And what we started to take on when I got here was, you know, what is the pivot we have to make to care for the park? We've restored Mm -hmm. the park and now we have to care for it. And we wrote a strategic plan around it. um, And that's really what our focus is. It's, It's complicated and it's expensive. And of course, it's so important. We can think of doing nothing else, but trying to make that work. (laughs) Talk about the boathouse. I know there's been a lot of publicity. People were, you know, not sure if it was going to close or not. I'm curious if you have any update. You know, it's, it's not easy doing business in the park, quite frankly. It's complicated getting people in and out of there. It's complicated getting food in and out of there. The boathouse is a beloved, beloved location in the park, and it's been tremendously successful. It's had the same concessionaire for many, many years, and his decision to leave the boathouse, um, the city now is negotiating with him to make sure that there is continued service through the holiday season. There's many, many holiday parties at the boathouse. And so that's good news. And I believe the city is negotiating with a a new concessionaire to pick up that contract, uh, which would be a great benefit. We don't want to see the boathouse close. And I think the city agrees and is moving ahead with trying to keep it. It's the popular place it's always been. Well, that's great news. I'm happy to hear that. So I'm sure like every nonprofit, you must have a terrific board and and rely on the board for a lot of different things. But how can the public support uh, Central Park and the Conservancy? Well, look, the most important thing to me is that all New Yorkers, and I mean every single one of us, understands that Central Park is a critical resource for the city. It's a barometer about the way people feel about New York City. It is probably one of the most distinguished landmarks and visited destinations in the country, certainly in the city. And I want everyone to know that it's privately managed. It's managed by a not-for-profit. We are a cultural institution dedicated to the care of the park. And the way people can help is to, one, know that. But there's other ways to, you know, there are many ways to support us. Of course, you can be a donor. We love having members. We love having major donors. We love having people support us financially. But believe me, the park would not look the way it does without volunteers. So Mm -hmm. we're expanding our volunteer program. We have thousands of volunteers and we need every single one of them and we need more. So volunteering. But I guess most importantly, it's being an advocate for the park, uh, being an advocate for its purpose, uh, understanding why when we're trying to manage its popularity that things we're doing or in the interest of really trying to balance the enormous amount of 
different uses that go on in the park uh, every day. So people's appreciation for that. And as you had mentioned before, the fragility of the park, it's it's mm-hmm. important for people to know that. But there's lots of ways for people to support us, but being an advocate, a donor, a volunteer, those are the main ways. And what website would they go to if they want to learn more? It's centralparknyc.org. Mm-hmm. And there's a, our website, which we recently redid, <laughs> has a lot of information tells you about us, tells you about our history. There's a magazine of articles about aspects of Central Park and the restoration projects we've taken on. There's a lot of really interesting reading about it. Our historian, uh, Sarah Cedar Miller, just finished a book called Before the Park, Before Central Park. And it is about what was there on that 843 acres before Central Park was there. It's a mm-hmm. fascinating book that layers pretty much the social history of the city into the 843 acres of our of our park. I love it. Well, listen, it's been a pleasure talking to you. I've learned a lot myself about Central Park that I didn't know before. uh, Any New Yorker would have to appreciate how magnificent it is. So I take my hat off to you because I know it doesn't come easy. These are not easy things to operate. I really appreciate the the chance to talk about the park. It's beloved. I happen to be running an institution that does work that I think everyone understands is important. And I really appreciate the chance to talk about it. Thank you so much for your interest. No, it's our absolute pleasure. For anyone that wants to listen to Schneps Connects, you can stream us wherever you get your podcasts or online at podcast.schnepsmedia.com.